So Heavenly Father, Lord, as the song says, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. And today, Lord, we'll look at your second coming, the second advent, and then we will be in your house forever. And Lord, I pray for those that may be here that don't know you right now, Lord, that you would open their ears and their hearts to hear the message of your coming, your returning, for those of us whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And Lord, I pray that I myself would get out of your way, Lord, that I would empty myself and that it would not be me speaking, but you would speak your words through me and through that bring life more abundantly to all of us that have heard your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning and Happy New Year, and I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. Today, we're going to conclude our series, Behold the Lamb, as we look at Behold the Lamb Who Returns in Glory. And our text for today will come from Revelation 21. But before we get to that, I want you to turn all the way to the other end of your Bible, to the beginning. Genesis, where it all started. And today we're going to take a brief look at creation, the fall, redemption, and then restoration. And we're going to look at all those, because if we don't look at, start with creation and look back, what is restoration all about? Now Dave read for you, Genesis 1, as our invocation passage this morning, and it was the story of creation. But did you catch that as he was reading that, as God was creating his creation, at the end of each day, he said, it is good, until the sixth day, after he had made man and everything was in place, he said, it was very good. And why the change? Because he was done. It was perfect. He had created the perfect creation. And when he was done with that, came the seventh day, God rested, and we see in Genesis 2, thus the heavens the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So we have, he's created this beautiful place called the Garden of Eden. He's created his crown jewel, Adam and Eve. He's got this perfect setting, and now... All they get to do is fellowship together. Adam and Eve and God. Think of that. There was no sin. There was nothing to come between God and them. In fact, if you remember the four aspects that we looked at for the four weeks of Advent, as we were looking at the first coming of Christ, we're looking forward to the second coming, 
That first week, we talked about peace. And we asked the question, how do we find peace? Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our, excuse me, our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And the second week, we looked at love, and we asked the question, how do we love well? Again, in Romans, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that third week, we looked at hope. And we asked the question, how do we keep hope? In Romans 15 again, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then last, we looked on the fourth week at joy. And we said, how do we know joy? In 1 Peter and through you, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So we looked at peace, love, hope, joy. But I'm here to tell you that Adam and Eve, they had it perfect. They had the perfect peace, love, hope, joy as they worshiped with God there in the garden. I mean, can you even imagine that there's this perfect garden, just you and your wife and God, and it, you just get to fellowship all the time. It's just, you're, you're just lost in, in his presence and just nothing else there. You can imagine, there is just no pride, there's no envy, there's no stress. They're just enjoying God's company. And God gave them only one commandment. Chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, we see, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. But for, <clears throat> for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So here they are in this beautiful, perfect creation. One command, don't eat of this one tree. They got all the rest of it they can eat. One tree, not to eat. And what did they do? They blew it. So we've got beautiful creation. Now we have the fall. Sin enters the world. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. And 
and we're going to look at the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here we are, Satan doing what Satan still does to this day, taking the words of God, twisting them around, convincing Eve that's not what God really meant. And she takes the fruit, eats it, gives it to Adam, who's not innocent in this whole thing, because he's standing right there. He's with her. He takes it, eats, and sin enters the world. Picking back up in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, remember, they've been in this perfect communion with God in this perfect garden. They, they know, they're familiar with hearing the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. But their reaction this time is totally different. Instead of looking forward to God and looking forward to having relationship and communion with him, what do they do? They go and they hide. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be, my, be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's everybody's fault but our own, right? Let's blame it on the devil, and then, you know, first he's blamed, Adam's blaming Eve, and Eve's blaming the devil. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, 
but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherub and the flaming sword that turned away to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we have this beautiful creation, this beautiful relationship, all come crashing down from sin, and Adam and Eve are chased out of the garden. No longer in this beautiful garden that they didn't have to do anything to eat. They just had to take care of it. Now he's got to, Adam's got to work the ground so that they have food and Eve is going to have pain and greater pain in childbearing. One bite of fruit. Adam and Eve experienced the most dramatic change known to mankind. Now, we often look at Paul and the road to Damascus and we say that's quite a change. He went from someone persecuting the church to someone preaching the gospel. And that is quite a change. But I would tell you that I think Adam and Eve experienced an even greater dramatic change in that they went from perfect fellowship to no fellowship, to being out of the garden. <clears throat> As I said, they had, or Eve got multiplied pain and childbearing there was a lack of peace between man and woman. Through the curse to the ground to work with the sweat of your face. Again, through one man, Adam, sin had entered the world. Gone was that perfect peace, love, hope, joy. And instead, we have the world's first dysfunctional family. I mean, you've got one brother killing the other brother. Dysfunctional family start. And as you know, it only keeps getting worse. The world is just spinning downward from that. So, you've seen that we cre God created this beautiful, perfect creation. Satan tempted the woman. They ate the fruit they weren't supposed to. Sin entered the world. So a totally different picture. But don't worry, because God had a plan. And he had a plan for redemption. Only one plan from the beginning, a plan to redeem his creation. 
In fact, we celebrated part of that plan last week when you celebrated Christmas. You celebrated the first advent, the first coming of the Messiah, of the Christ. And now we look forward to the second. Jesus Christ, an equal part of the Trinity, God's only son, would come to earth as a human. Philippians tells us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So first God sent his son here to the earth, and he was to live a perfect life. And we see that in 2 Corinthians, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become like righteousness of God. So he lived a perfect life, and he went to the cross so that he could be the perfect sacrifice on the cross for our sins. All of them, past, present, and future. He paid it all. Ephesians tells us, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This was God's only plan all along. It's redemption. And in Colossians it tells us, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, we've seen God's <clears throat> creation. We've seen sin enter the world through one man, Adam. And in God's perfect plan, through one man, the Christ Jesus, that man could be redeemed. Corinthians tells us, For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ. So we're not without hope. As we studied during the Advent, we have hope in Jesus Christ. But the problem is, we're still living in this lost and fallen world. That's going to change someday soon, which brings us to the text of his glorious return. And that is the second advent, and that's what his second advent is all about, his glorious return. So now turn with me, if you would, to the end of your Bible. And we're going to look at the last book and the next to last chapter, Revelation 21. 
starting in, in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, I just want to get out of the way that I'm not here to debate about the tribulation, your take on it. You may be mid, you may be pre, you may be post. This is all after that. So wherever you want to align there, this is the end. We're after that. The first earth, that's the earth we're living on right now, has been destroyed along with the first heaven. And God has created a perfect new heaven and a new earth. Now we, were war- we knew this was coming. If, if you've read Second Peter chapter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we see in verse 2 that he says, I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In Hebrews, talking about the saints of old, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Just like ultimately we are strangers and exiles on earth because this is not our final home. For the people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Remember verse 13 of Peter, it said, But according to the promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, so was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob awaiting the promise also. So this isn't just a promise for us believers in the New Testament. This has been a promise of a new land, a new heaven, and a new earth since the beginning. It says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in just a moment, we'll see just how adorned this city is. But you all know that a bride is beautiful on her wedding day. She's all dressed up. She's adorned in the most beautiful dress, jewels, whatever that she can. And she's all adorned. We're going to take a look at just how adorned the city is that he calls the bride. 
Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So, here we are. Through, through time, you saw that Adam and Eve, they temporarily dwelled with God in the garden. The Jews dwelled with God in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And Jesus, as Dave read in our opening passage, Jesus once walked on this earth and dwelled with man. But those were all temporary dwellings. Now, we're not without hope because as Jesus left, he gave us the Holy Spirit. So we have God in us, but one day we are literally going to dwell in his house. Again, like the song said, better is one day in the house of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. Well, how much better is every day in the house of the Lord? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Again, can you get the picture of how perfect things are back to? There is no sin. There is no sadness. There is no disappointment. There is nothing deficient. Nothing is wrong with this place. It is perfect. Everything is perfect. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So he has said, I am making all things new. Everything is new. Now this isn't just new and better, a new and replacement. You know, this is the perfect earth being restored. What, what, what Adam and Eve once enjoyed in the Garden of Eden, we're all going to now enjoy in perfect heaven. He is the beginning, the end. He created the first earth and the first heavens. And now he says it is done. He is concluded with the final new heaven and new earth. But this new earth, he warns us, in Jerusalem is only for those who conquer, who exercise a saving faith in Christ. So if we pick back up in verse 9 here, we're going to see how adorned that city was. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me this holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, can you just imagine the Apostle Paul, or Apostle John seeing this come down, this perfect city, this revelation that God is giving him? Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. He had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And on the wall, the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the walls of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth crystal phrase, the eleventh chasmon, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of the single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Okay. What a glorious home this is. Can you imagine if you got to you know, go out and build your, your dream home, had everything in it you wanted, it wouldn't begin to equal to this home that is coming down out of heaven for us. And this is God's home. This is his abode. This is where we, well, some of us, will get to spend eternity with. Will it be your zip code? It's either heaven or hell. But we don't want to get too distracted by this beautiful city because it is a beautiful city but the point is what's coming with it and we see in starting in verse 22 I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb again there's no temple to go worship God in in this new city because God is the temple. No temple in the new Jerusalem? That's right. There is no temple because God and the Lamb are the temple. Everything has been made new, including the new holy city, Jerusalem. And God is going to reside right there and dwell with his people forever. We will literally be in the pres his presence continuously. 
In verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will, be, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into, the glory, into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So you notice there is no night. The glory of God will be light forever. And the lamb will be a continuous lamp. And by that light, people of every nation and tongue will walk forever. Now, you may remember that I said some of us will get to live there forever. There are only two final homes. It's the New Jerusalem that we've been talking about today, or it's the Lake of Fire. Who will be where? And if you're old enough to remember, like me, Paul Harvey used to do a radio broadcast and would end it, and now the rest of the story. So we're going to take a look at the last of the story. Verse 27. but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is despicable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So what does all that mean to us today? Well, if you're a believer, as I believe that most of you are, you saw the answer when we read Second uh, Peter 3. In verse 11 there, it said, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Now, that is not a question. In the Greek, that is a statement, an emphatic statement telling us what we are to be doing. Uh, John MacArthur defines it this way. Holiness, he says, the way a Christian should live, separate from sin. Now, we all know we still sin, but we should be striving to be separate from sin. And again, you're not left on your own to do this. You've got the Holy Spirit as a believer. You've got the Holy Spirit inside of you helping you to live separate from sin. And godliness, the spirit of reverence that should permeate a Christian's attitude, that which should rule the heart. Right here should be the godliness. You should be striving to live separate from sin, living a godly life. And you're to be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Again, what we've been talking about today, when the first heaven and the first earth are burned up and the new heaven and the new earth are made. Hastening means we should be excited and looking forward to it. We should be looking forward to the second coming of Christ. We should be looking forward to this new earth and this new heaven.
But first, everyone has to hear the good news, and then the end comes. Matthew 24 tells us, in this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So what do we need to be doing? Out making disciples. Out getting the word out around the world. Now, New Year's Day is just a few days away. And what better way would there be for you to celebrate New Year's than to bring a new believer with you into the new year? And we, in our little house, got a Christmas present of what I believe was a new believer. And this is, anybody can do this. Anybody can share. But our, we call him our son in love, our son-in-law, Blair, was a Catholic. Grew up Catholic. His dad's a Catholic. His brother's Catholic. But he converted to Christian religion and accepted Christ just before he married my daughter. And, but that leaves his dad still, and, and as those of you that are Catholic in this room, were formerly Catholic, can test to when you come to a saving faith in Christ, your family is one of the biggest issues you got to deal with. And so Blair was pretty well, our son-in-love, was pretty well put out by his dad and his brother. A few years ago, we were doing, as Cornerstone Church here, the men and leadership development group, we were doing a book called Systematic Theology. Great big, huge book of theology. And I happened to have my copy with me, and we were up in Seattle for a change of command for our son, Blair. And his dad was there as well, Blair Sr. He asked me what I was reading in the book, and he seemed intrigued, and so I shared some of it with him. And Tina, being my spirit, when the Holy Spirit isn't got my attention, says, let's leave him your book. He's an avid reader. Let's leave him your book. So I left that big, huge, systematic theology book with him. Now, thanks to beautiful world of Amazon, Tina had a new one there for me before we even left. But here, here's a man who's staunch Catholic, but is intrigued by this book of theology. So off he goes with it. He returns to Delaware. We return to Phoenix. We exchange a few texts here and there. But Blair and Megan continue to share with him. And then Megan and Blair get transferred to Leavenworth, where Blair is supposed to be going through some classes, some schooling. And lo and behold, he doesn't get to do it there in Leavenworth. He's got to go to Virginia for four and a half months for school. And I'm not real good with geography, but I have figured out that Virginia is a whole lot closer to Delaware than Kansas is. And Blair got to go up and visit with his dad because he was so close. Had to spend Thanksgiving with his dad. Got to help him pick a church. And for the last five weeks now, he has been attending a Christian church. And on Christmas Day, he texted me. Our Savior is born today. Merry Christmas. I love you.
So we believe he's well on his way to walking with God. Amen. So, and hopefully you can all have that same experience, just sharing your faith in, in just small ways. But maybe you're here today and you don't know the Lord. Maybe you're still walking in darkness. Or maybe you know him, you know of him, but you never made him your Lord. It's as good as not knowing him. So your book, your name isn't written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But it's not too late. And maybe some of you, what's holding you back is similar to a little story that I heard a little over 30 years ago from a man named Zig Ziglar, who would give motivational speakings, but every speech you would walk away. He wouldn't make it about religion, but you would walk away, no doubt, knowing he knew Christ as his Savior. And he told this story. He had some dirty clothes in the trunk of his car. Needed to go to the dry cleaners with him. And he got a flat tire and had changed the tire, and now the dirty tire is in the trunk with the dirty clothes. They're getting even dirtier. And if you've ever rubbed up against a tire or anything, you know the mess it makes of your clothes. So he gets to the dry cleaner, he takes out, he shakes the clothes, he walks in, puts them down on the counter, hands them to the gal and says, I'm really sorry about how dirty these clothes are. I tried to clean them a little bit before I brought them in. And she looks at him and says, if you could have cleaned them, you wouldn't need me. Well, how many of you have friends or how many of you maybe think that that's what you need to do. You need to clean up a little bit, and then you'll be good enough to accept Christ. You need to get rid of your alcohol problem, or you need to get rid of your pornography problem, or you need to get rid of this, or you need to get rid of that, and then you'll be okay. That's not it. He's looking to take you just as you are. And one of the reasons that story has probably stuck with me all these years is because it also sounds a lot like one of my favorite hymns. Listen to these words. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am and waiting not, to rid my soul of one dark blot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, Lord, thou tossed about with many a conflict and many a doubt, fightings, fears, within and without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thou will receive will dwell, come pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that right now for those that may not know you as their Lord and Savior, 
that they would just simply come. That they would lay it all at the cross. You're not waiting for them to clean up a little bit. You're not waiting for them to get a little better. But you're waiting for them to come. So Lord, I pray that as you move on their heart, they would reach out to someone today to share the news that God is working in their heart and someone would have the opportunity to walk a new believer into your arms and know you as their Lord and Savior. So Lord, as we come upon a new year, as we wait expediently, excitingly for your return, Lord, as we look forward to it, help us to be faithful to you, live godly lives, live holiness, separate ourselves from sin, and look to help those around us know you as their Lord and Savior. We give you the glory and the honor for it. In Jesus' name, amen.